If you still have Romans 6 open, you can just go ahead and keep it right there as we, uh, we jump back into our time of study. We're actually in a section of Philippians uh, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. And uh, before we get into those verses, which I hope that we can today, um, try to do a little bit of background on um, uh, the subject that we're kind of, uh, that's being introduced by these verses. Uh, last time, with the first line in chapter uh, 2, verse 12, and you don't need to turn there, I want to go ahead and stay in Romans 6, but um, Paul says, work out your salvation. And we asked the question last time, well, how are you supposed to work out your salvation? I thought salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and, and, and it's not as a result of works. In fact, that's in the Bible, right? Uh, Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 10 says it's not a result of works. So, so how are we to work out our salvation? And I just encouraged you last time, whenever you come to places in Scripture where you go, huh, that doesn't seem to fit with what I know, uh, that's a great opportunity to kind of pull the car over and, and really uh, dig in and, and look forward to a time of study as we seek to harmonize parts of Scripture that may not seem to go together at first glance. Uh, obviously, if God is the author of Scripture, and He is, we expect the whole Bible to go together, that God doesn't change His mind, the Scripture says. He doesn't um, uh, say one thing in the Old Testament and then change something in the New Testament. You know, the message of Scripture harmonizes and goes together. So, so what does he mean then when he says, work out your salvation? Well, remember last time uh, I mentioned to you that salvation has three aspects. Now, these are not in your notes, but just review from last time. There is justification. Sometimes we call that conversion, where a person uh, puts their faith and trust in Christ uh, for the first time, and they are regenerated, they are converted, uh, they are born again. Those are all basically synonyms to describe the same event. And for a believer, this is what we call the past fact of salvation. It's something that happened to us in the past. It's a, it was a one-time deal, and it's done. Okay, That's one aspect of salvation. Secondly, I, ta- I told you last time about sanctification, which is a progressive work in the life of the believer where he grows each day to be more like Christ. And if you're a Christian, that is a present reality of salvation. It's, it's an ongoing work. It's not done yet. It's still going. Uh, but that's the present reality of salvation. And then thirdly, glorification, which is a future hope of salvation where when we die or when Jesus comes again, whichever comes first, we are translated uh, into the kingdom of heaven and he removes all of our sin at that point and makes us to be perfectly like Christ in all things. Um, so you see, there are three different aspects of salvation. So we can't just assume. Yeah, I mean, usually when we talk about salvation, we're talking about justification, aren't we? That, that's usually, you know, when we, when we talk about salvation, usually we use it synonymously with justification. But we can see it can't be justification that Paul's talking about in, second, in uh, Philippians chapter 2 because um, he's talking about something that is ongoing, whereas justification is a past fact. He can't be talking about glorification because that doesn't happen until you die. Where Christ comes. So he must be talking about sanctification, which is that ongoing work, and that is the present reality that believers are called to work out in sanctification. Now, um, because I love you guys, you have a chart in your notes. Um, several of you came up last week and asked for copies of this, so I thought I'm just going to put it in the notes next week. So there it is. Um, see if this makes sense, okay? Let's see if this makes sense to you. Um, this is going to feel like flashback to like ninth grade math, I know, but just hang in there, okay? Um, at the point of conversion, like, like uh, you know, this, this is righteousness, this is time, 
So here you are at the point of conversion. In your position, you are justified. You are righteous. You are declared righteous. That's what justification means. You are declared righteous by God. So in terms of your position before God, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ now such that you are accepted by God, perfect in the eyes of God, and it's on the basis of Christ's righteousness in terms of our position that God accepts us and that he allows us to be a part of his family and to go into heaven. Okay, So at conversion, in terms of our position now, the blue line represents the position of the believer before God. He's perfect. He is perfectly righteous. He is just like Christ in his position. But the black line, of course, represents our practice. And you, and you can see, oh, that's a bad day, isn't it? Oh, that's a better, oh, that's a really good day. Look at that. Uh, no, no, they're not, not such a good day. Okay, okay, going be- better. Okay, good, you're right. Oh, no, not such a good day. Okay, doing better, uh, declining, moving up, leveling off. Okay, isn't that what sanctification is like? You have good days and you have bad days. There are days that by God's grace... Um, you see fruit and growth and change. And there are other days that we struggle and we fall into temptation and we have to repent and, and turn back to get on the right road. Well, that, that's how sanctification goes. So it just kind of moves along like that. And notice that sanctification is progressive. This is what Terry has been talking about in First John. A believer, obviously, is not perfect in their practice. Right? A believer still struggles with sin. Uh, the sin is not just eradicated out of the life of the believer. But there is what? what? What is this? Remember rise over run? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm bringing back bad memories for some of you. Remember rise over run? What is this? Okay, the laser just died. It's the slope, right? It's the trend of the graph. And what First John says is that there should be an overall growing or maturing or progressing in the life of the believer such that growth is the pattern of their life. It's not, not perfection, right? Not perfection. But there is progress and there is an overall pattern of growth. And that, that's exactly what uh, it looks like. Okay? There, there's a, a, an upward slope. Now, if you're seeing a downward slope over the person's whole life, then John says in 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 3 that we have good reason to question whether a person's really a Christian or not. Because we should expect maturity and growth and fruit. Not perfection, but growth. Yes, sir. Sure, yeah. So you got like you got like a line. You may approach right. falling off the chart, but if you actually on the chart, there's a limit. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I need to go back and, and tweak it and add some asymptotes to my uh, to my chart here. Yeah. No, that's true. And, and you might just want to write down. You might want to write down Romans eight twenty nine. That's a good verse to write down, because what Romans eight twenty nine says is that um, God's work of salvation is ultimately His work. Now we're going to see today. We have a role in it. We have a role in sanctification. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So we don't sit on the spiritual couch. And wait for God to just transform us magically into a super Christian. We, we, we don't. That's not how it works. We have a role. We have a role to play. But what Romans eight twenty nine says is it is ultimately God's work in the sense that He will not allow a believer to fall away. That's not going to happen. He's not going to fall off the end of the chart somehow. Um, but because God is committed to the work, 
even though there are days we struggle and we wonder if it's going to continue, right? Sin is like that sometimes. But because God is committed to the work, whom he uh, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's sanctification. And those um, who he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's Romans 8, 29. Uh, Theologians call that the golden chain. The language is such that there is a progression of events that cannot be stopped. It will be completed. That's God's work. That's God's promise. So that's a great point, Mac. Uh, And thankfully, the Bible reminds us that God is committed to that work and he won't allow us to to fall off the slope, so to speak, at some point. Okay, now at the end of this, the believer dies, right? At some point, we all die or Jesus comes again. We should should put a little asterisk there or or second coming, whatever, whatever we want to put there. And at the point of death, that work in terms of our righteousness in our practice, what we actually do is immediately completed to where we are just like Christ. Um, So at death or Christ's coming, our practice now comes in line with our position. Okay, Does that make sense? Now, we have three aspects of salvation, three names that I gave you a minute ago. The other name for conversion is justification. That's the first aspect of salvation. That progressive work in the life of the believer is called sanctification. And the other name, when uh, a person dies and their practice immediately is brought in line with Christ, that's called glorification. Okay, does that make sense? I'm not going to make you do multiplication problems as homework or anything, so don't worry. But um, this helps me. This helps me kind of put it all together. You know, I'm one of those guys, if I can see it, then it kind of makes sense. If I can't see it, it doesn't really make sense. So hopefully for those of you that are are visual learners, that will help. The rest of you, I consider you advanced students, and you don't need pictures. You just get it automatically. So that's great. You can help the rest of us. All right. So those are the three aspects of salvation, kind of review from last time. Now, uh, just some points here. It's a progressive work. And where we left off is the basis of a believer's sanctification. So I now invite you to look back at Romans 6 that you have in front of you. And uh, let's just kind of wave our hands at this. But, but this is very important that we see this. Just because sanctification is both something that we are engaged in and something that God works in also, that doesn't mean that Keith gets any glory from it, that there's any intrinsic work that I do, that um, the only reason a believer is able to grow and change in terms of sanctification is because he is united to Christ. In fact, you might just jot down next to Romans 6, jot, jot down John chapter 15. Just jot that down there. You can look that up on your own time. John 15, the vine and the branches, right? Jesus says, I'm the vine, talking to the disciples, you're the Branches, right? And then he talks about there's this relationship where the vine is connected to the branches and just like in the analogy in the plant world, all of the um, resources necessary for that uh, vine, that branch, that tree or bush or whatever it is to be alive, it comes from the root system of that plant, doesn't it? And just like uh, when, the other day when I went out and, and trimmed my, um, uh, my uh, pear tree um, and I cut off the branches, and they were nice and green and going great, and, and cut them off, and I laid them in the yard to, for the trash man to come by. And would you believe the next day or two, all those leaves were brown? A couple days later, they're real crispy. You just snap them. 
those branches off, right? Because as soon as they get disconnected from the, the trunk of the tree, they die. And that's Jesus' point. In fact, he says in, in John 15, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So even sanctification, the believer's growth in his life, his maturity, his becoming more like Christ, that's only possible because we're connected to Christ, because we are identified with and united to Christ. And that's what Romans 6 is all about. And I, I read the whole thing for you, but let me just hit some highlights for you, okay? Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, we're going to have we're going to have a baptism this morning. Isn't that cool? And it's important anytime we have a baptism to understand uh, what the text of Scripture is talking about. Because what Romans 6, there's no water in Romans 6. Okay, The baptism that Paul is speaking of here is not the act of baptism, the physical act involving the water. It's the spiritual reality of baptism. You say, what does that mean? When a person trusts in Christ, when they're converted, that person is united with Jesus. The vine and the branches come together in such a way that that believer participates in Christ's death and burial and resurrection. In other words, Christ's death and burial and resurrection now applies to that person who has just trusted in Christ. And he is united to the vine. He is united to Christ. That participation in Christ's death and burial and resurrection is called baptism, or what we would call the spiritual reality of baptism. It's an identification with, it's a uniting with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. You say, well, then, then why do we do the water thing? Well, guess what? The water baptism is a picture of the spiritual reality talked about here. You say, what do you mean? Well, in a, in a minute, I won't tell you who it is. Some of you know who it is. He's in this room. But in a moment, this man is going to come. He's going to give a testimony. Pastor Terry's going to take him. He's going to say, on the basis of your... Uh, profession of faith. It's my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And at that point, he's going to take this man and put him under the water. And then he's going to bring him back up. Okay. And we say, why do we do that? Because it's a picture. When a person goes under the water, that's a picture of their identification with Christ's death. They die. When they're under the water, that's a picture of their identification with Christ's burial. Right? They're, they're under the water. And then when they're brought back up, that is a picture of them being raised to walk in newness of life the way Christ was raised from the dead. So baptism is a picture of those three aspects, death, burial, and resurrection. And what Paul is saying here is when a person trusts Christ, they participate in Christ's death and burial and resurrection. Water baptism is just a picture of that. It's a testimony of that. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's no water, at least in my view, there's no water in Romans 6. Romans 6 is a spiritual reality that happens at conversion. Physical baptism is just a picture of that reality. Okay, so, so what's, what's the result of all that? Look at verse 5. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The first thing Paul wants us to see here is that when a person trusts Christ and they participate in Christ's death, their old sinful self dies. What the King James called the old man. 
right? The old sinful self, um, who we were before Christ. <clears throat> and the end result of that is what we call redemption. There is a breaking of the bonds between people and sin. Sinful people are a slave to sin. We are in slavery to sin. Sin is like our master. We are a slave to it. And what Paul says here in verse 6 is when we become a Christian, we are no longer a slave to sin. Those chains are broken, and that is, uh, that's what redemption means. Redemption means those chains of sin are broken. We're bought back out of sin so that we're no longer a slave. Now you say, well, what's the result of that? Look at verse 11. If that's true, he says, then consider yourself to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Your old self, all those things you did before you became a Christian, all those practices, all those habits, those things you said, those things you thought about, the, the hobbies that you engaged in that weren't honoring God, all those things, he says, if you've come to Christ, you consider who you were before Christ to be dead. Now you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then getting very practically, look at how Paul plays this out in verse 12. He says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its laws. Don't keep presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but instead present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. This is, this is like sanctification kindergarten here. He says, he says, look, you know how before Christ... You just went out and did all that sinful stuff. Yeah, okay. Well, now consider yourself dead to that. Now take your body, take your words, take your mind, take your actions, take your affections, take your hobbies, take your family, take everything in your life and use it now for righteousness instead of sin. That's what being raised to walk in newness of life is. That's what it means, That's what it means to be in Christ now. He says don't keep living in, in sin. Don't keep doing that because you, your old self has died. Now use your body for righteousness. Now, now look look at uh, what this results in in verse 19. Just look down the page of verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in, in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness. Your members just means your body, your life, everything about you. Now present your members as slaves of righteousness, and when you do that, what results? According to verse 19. Sanctification. So here, all I want you to see here, we're not trying to get into all the mechanics of how it works, but what I'm trying to show you is that your identification with Jesus Christ, your, your being united with Him in His death and burial and resurrection, that is the basis for a believer's sanctification, for His growth and His change in this life. Okay? And just like Jesus said, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. There are all sorts of people trying to improve themselves, trying to get past addictions and habits and bad mannerisms and, and trying, they're trying to work on their marriage and their parenting. And, okay, and you know why they don't ultimately change? They're not united to the vine. One, I don't want to get too far off here, but one of the things we've been... Uh, the, uh, there's a counseling class that I teach on Monday that some of you are involved in, and we just finished a whole section on, on counseling those from the Bible who have addictions, you know, drug addiction, alcohol, uh, pornography, video games. I mean, everything is an addiction now. Um, the most common thing... I was just reading a secular article on this a couple of weeks ago. The most common thing you see with people trying to change in addictions is what they call addiction swapping. 
And the classic, the classic picture of that is you drive by the AA meeting hall, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting hall, and it's at the break. And all the people in the AA meeting are outside doing what? Smoking. Now again, I understand that, that that's not true. Everybody, some people do better than that. But but the secularists right now are saying the most common thing we see as people try to work through an addiction is they just swap one addiction for another. Right? Um, why can't we actually realize change in the heart? Why can't we actually overcome real issues so that we see real righteousness and maturity? Why not? Because you need Jesus to do that. You can, you can make the outside look better, but without Christ's work, you can't actually break out of the slavery of sin. You're stuck. And apart from Christ's work, uh, we're not going to see any significant inward change. Now, again, footnote, I'm not saying... You know, AA and other, obviously those have helped people and that's great. You understand what I'm saying, right? I'm not saying there's no help there. What I'm saying is without Jesus, you can't know true help, real help in the heart. Okay? So the basis of a believer's sanctification is his position in Christ. Now, with all that being said, let's flip back to our text, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and let's see if we can unpack this here, okay? Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me just remind you of where we've been. Uh, let's just read it. You can follow along as I read uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, here it is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, that's where we're at. And we said that the aspect that Paul is calling believers to work out, which aspect of salvation is it? Which one of the three? It's the second one, the doctrine of sanctification. Very good. Okay. So let, let's, uh, let's take this apart. We'll put it back together here to see if we make sense of it. The first thing he says, well, really, this text teaches that there are two main dynamics, two key dynamics of sanctification. In fact, I would just say to you today, I bet if we were to go around the room, and we won't do this, I bet if we were to go around the room and, and, and we had a chance to just kind of be real transparent, real honest with each other, that we might be able to say, you know what, there are some things in my life that I'm struggling with. Right? I bet all of us have things in our life that are struggling with. Some may be big, huge, some may be not as serious, but we all have areas of our life that we're struggling with. And I bet if you're, if you're a Christian, I bet that grieves you. It should grieve you that we are dishonoring God in some way with some struggle, some temptation, some habit of our life that we're, we're currently struggling with. What we're going to learn here is how you change, how you grow. How do you work on that so that you say, you know what, by God's grace, I'm different. Now remember Romans 8:29. God's going to do that. God is going to complete that work. What is the process that he calls us to to do that. You know, there are two extremes when people think about growing and changing. In some Christian circles, they think, if I just try really hard, if I just try really hard, I, if I just become a more disciplined person, 
You know, I can just, I just gotta work hard. You know, and, and, and people in that camp, they usually think like this. There are two types of people in the world. The disciplined people and the undisciplined people. And I'm just an undisciplined person, so I just need to work on it, okay? And they're all about getting after it for Jesus. And then, there are people that think, you know what? I have the Holy Spirit within me. I'm redeemed. God's my Father. I'm His child. I'm just gonna sit right here. And God is going to make me more like Jesus. All right, anytime now. And they sit and they wait and they wait. Some an extension of that is they think if I just if I just think about my position, I am in Christ. I'm in Christ, really. I am. You know, and they just they just sit around and they don't do anything. They think because they're a Christian, God's just going to automatically do it. And what Paul is going to say here is that both of those extremes are wrong. In fact, there is an element, there is a proper place for both. Okay, so let's look at those together. The first key, the first dynamic of sanctification is this. It's in verse 12. It's the believer's hard work of obedience to the commands of Scripture. The believer's hard work of obedience to the commands of Scripture. Look back at verse 12. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not so much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, does that sound like sitting on the spiritual couch, letting go and letting God? You know, uh, how many of you guys play sports? Okay. Um, okay. We were talking about football the other day, weren't we? Okay. Um, have you started practice yet? Okay, let's let's test this. Okay, we test this little thing. Uh, when you go out to practice, or your coach say, "Okay, guys, I want you to lay on the grass for three hours, and then we'll call it a day, and then we'll do that for five, and then we'll do two a days. We'll do that in the morning and at night, and then when season comes, we'll all be ready to." Okay, is, is that what he did? No, see, it doesn't, it doesn't work in sports, it doesn't work in academics, it doesn't work in any other discipline, but for some reason we think when it comes to walking with Christ, the rules all change. And that I can grow in Christ without any effort on my part. And Paul's saying no. In fact, some of these Philippians were not growing because they weren't engaging in effort and work. Now he has a, a better testimony for them. He says, you know, your general pattern is to obey, and that's good. But he says what? Work out your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, you say, well, what does that word work mean? It means work. Effort. Not, it's not playtime. It's not leisure. It's not casual. It's, it's not a lack of activity. There, there's effort and work and growth. And, and, and what are we supposed to work on? Well, he tells us. Just as you've always obeyed. It's a working, it's an effort to obey. Have you noticed that the Bible has a lot of stuff that God tells us to do? Have you noticed this? And those commands don't change just because you're a Christian now. In fact, if we were to just survey the New Testament where, where God is talking to believers in Jesus Christ, Let's think about some of those commands. Okay, we just think about what are some commands of Scripture that come to mind as you think about that? Things that God tells you to do as a Christian. Love one another. Love one another. Very good. Okay. What, what's another one? Meditate on His Word. Okay. What else? What's that? Keep His commandments. That's 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 pretty broad, isn't it? Right. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay. What else? Practice 
participate in fellowship. Okay, what else? Be holy as I am holy. Pray without ceasing. Guys, it tells us to love our wives like Christ loves the church. You think that requires some work? No, I, I just mean, I look at myself, I think, I don't look a whole lot like Jesus. I need to work on that. Right? Wives, if you're married, what does it tell you to do? Follow and respect your husband. That's hard to do some days, isn't it? Because we know we're not respectable as we should be on some days. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's hard to do too. But bring them up in the, in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, that takes work, doesn't it? It takes effort. I don't just wake up in the morning and close my eyes and hope that my, my children grow up to be like Jesus. I, I just don't hope that that happens. I have to do things or hard things. Never take your own revenge, my brothers. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slammer be put away from you along with all malice. That's a command. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive your brother when he repents. That's hard to do too, isn't it? See, there's all these commands of Scripture. And what Paul is saying, if you want the bottom line, Paul is saying you will not become more like Jesus. You will not grow. You will not mature without obedience and effort to obey what God has asked you to do. Okay, And I don't know why. Some, somewhere along the way we thought, I can become mature in Christ without working at it. That's not true in athletics, right, Kyler? That's not true in academics. That's not true in any other discipline. It's not true in anything. But somehow we think it's true in Christianity. And it's not. So we work out our salvation. We, it's the believer's hard work of obedience to the commands of Scripture. And just at the point we say, ha, I'm going to get out there and do this for Jesus. Look at the next verse. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the second key dynamic. We have to get out and work and give it effort and try. But as we do that, who works through our efforts? What's the reason that those efforts realize any change? Answer, the second key dynamic is God's empowering presence within the believer. God's empowering presence. That's what it says there. God is at work where? What's the location? In you. Now, he doesn't say it here, but who is the main person of the Trinity who is responsible for that, uh, that growth and change inside the life of the believer? It's the Holy Spirit. Okay. God himself residing in the lives of people. And you may just jot down 1 Corinthians 6. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Or Romans chapter 8, just a few places. Uh, a couple chapters after where we were looking at a minute ago where the Bible talks about um, believers having the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit is the main reason that they can put off the flesh and grow in righteousness. Or if we were to go back in uh, the upper room discourse in John 13, 14, and 15 where Jesus says, I'm going to leave, but guess what? I'm going to send a helper and he's going to be with you. He's going to help you. He's going to assist you in that process. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
Absolutely. Excellent point. That's true. So the upward trends, that's Holy Spirit fingerprints, right? That's, that's right. Okay, so, so back up for a second. Two key dynamics here. The believer works out his salvation by seeking to obey the commands of Scripture. But as he does it, he's not relying on his own resources. He's not relying on himself. He's not unconscious of some outside agency. But as he does, who's he trusting in? He's trusting in God. He's trusting the Holy Spirit to work through his efforts. Now, think of it like this. Let's say, uh, I was trying to figure out a way to do this without ruining the ceiling, and I couldn't, so I didn't. Um, Let's say we cut, is Robert Moore here? Good, okay. Um, Let's say we cut a hole in the ceiling, okay? And up in the rafters, I put a big pulley, okay? So there's a pulley up there. And then let's say I took a rope, and I put it over the pulley so that coming down from the church ceiling is... Two sides of a rope. Okay? So far, so good? Um, sanctification is kind of like that. Because if I hang on to one side of the rope, and let's say I jump on a ladder and I jump on the ropes and I just grab it on one side, what's going to happen? Boom! Right? I fall on the floor. Or if I do it again, I get up on the ladder and I grab the other rope and I let go, what's going to happen? Boom! And I fall on the ground, right? But what happens now if I grab onto both sides of the rope? Now it supports me, doesn't it? Okay. Sanctification is like that. There are two ropes you've got to hang on to. And if you just hang on to one, you end up on the floor. You have to hang on, first of all, to growing in by obedience and work and effort. But you also, as you do that, have to have in your other hand, grasp firmly around God's work in you, the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the vine. He provides the resources. He provides what we need to do that. And you've got to hang on to both sides of the rope. But Paul goes even further. Watch this. What does God actually do in us? Two things. Did you catch it? What does God do in us? He produces, first of all, in the believer, a desire to obey. Look what it says there. It's God who is at work in you, both to will. Do you see that? One of the things that happens at conversion is that you're going to want to honor God. You're going to want to obey. You're going to want to love your wife. You're going to want to raise your children. You're going to want to follow your husband. You're going to want to be respectful to your boss. You're going to want to forgive that person that hurts you. You're you're going to have a desire in you to do what honors God. And where does that come from? It comes from God himself. It's there. You say, some days, I don't want to listen to that. I know, I know, we'll talk about that later. But, but in, in the heart of hearts of every Christian is a desire to honor God. And Pastor Terry was just talking about this a couple weeks ago in 1 John, wasn't he? He's saying, you know, your obedience, it may go up, it may go down, okay? But a believer is someone who wants to obey. They want to honor God. It grieves them when they don't. The, the, I'll say this, and, and you can... Send me emails if you disagree, okay? There is no place in Scripture, there is no category in Scripture for someone who is a genuine Christian who does not want to honor and obey what the Bible tells them to do. There's no category. There's no such thing. Oh, yeah, there is, uh, there is a category. I take that back. They're called a false believer. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. Terry's going to talk about that this morning. It's 
Remember the sower in the soils? It's the one that initially shoots up and then dies. Okay? There is no category of a real Christian who does not want to obey what their master tells them to do. So one of you quoted it a minute ago. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's not saying there's no struggle. That's not saying some days we fail. But in my heart, I want to obey. I want to. That desire comes from God. He puts that in you at conversion. And the second thing God does, look at what else he does. He works through the believer's effort, enabling him to obey. See, it is God who is at work in you, verse 13, both to will, that's the desire, and to work. Let me read you a definition of work here, okay? Here's what it means. To bring something about through the use of capability. I'll say that again. To bring something about through the use of capability. Where do we, where do we get the capability? The God who saves us. So God not only gives us the desire to obey, but He actually works through our efforts. Now, if you forget everything else, I want to tell you what I believe that comes out of this verse it is really the secret of Christian growth and sanctification. Okay? You, you ready? I'm, I'm about, I'm about to, to say this to you. That that... That supernatural ability to do what you and I don't think we can do. And you know what I'm talking about, right? You got, you got some struggle. We talked about it. You had that in your mind, that struggle, that thing, that temptation, that issue. And there are some days you think, I cannot do this. I cannot change. I have tried and I have tried. I have tried. Some of you have tried 20, 30 more years. The secret of what Paul is saying here, I say secret, it's not secret in Scripture, but a lot of Christians don't get it, okay? The, the, the secret here is that the power to change is in the obedience. You say, what do I mean? A lot of Christians do this. God, I'm waiting for you to give me what I need to do this, okay? So when I feel different, then I'll go change. Still feeling the same. Not feeling any different. And they wait for some sort of feeling that changes or some sort of magical something. And and you see what, what God has just told us here? When I take a step of obedience, trusting that God will work through that, you know what I realize? In that obedience, then I realize the power to change. The power for change is in the obedience. If you never take a step of obedience, if you never work, if you never try, you will never realize the power that is in you because of the Holy Spirit. You won't. So many Christians sitting around just waiting for something to happen. Well, I I still feel tempted to do that. Well, until you die, you're going to feel like that because you have a thing called a flesh. Christianity in terms of growth is not about God taking away the desire to sin or Him taking away the temptation to sin. It's saying, in the moment of temptation, Lord, I trust You that You will give me what I need, that if I take a step of obedience to do what You tell me to do instead of what I feel like doing right now, that You will be honored by giving me the power to resist. And He does. The power, friends, is in taking that step of obedience in trust of God 
in the process. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, and what is God's agenda in sanctification? I love this. What's his agenda in sanctification? The, the two key dynamics are the believer's obedience and God's work within him, right? I'm hanging on to both ropes. What's God's agenda? Look at the end of the verse. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Anybody have a New Living Translation with you? NLT, New Living Translation. Ruby, will you read verse uh, verse 13, please, nice and loud, please? I love how the New Living puts this. Okay. Say that last part one more time. Giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. I love that. that. That gets it. That captures it. What pleases God is when we do, relying on him, what pleases him. Do you think about this? When you resist temptation or you take a step of obedience to do something that's hard that you know you should do, you know God is honored in that? You know, how many of your parents? Okay. You know those moments when you're really proud of your kids? Maybe they, they work through that hard subject and they get an A or a B or a passing grade, you know, whatever's like, you know, good for them. Or, or they do something athletically or they do something even spiritually, and that, that welling up in your heart of just, that's my boy, right? That's my, my daughter, and you're, you're proud of them. That's what this is talking about. When we resist temptation, we take a step of obedience. When we say, no, I will not live like that anymore because God has given me what I need, I'm going to take a step of obedience, even if it's a baby step. God is honored in that. He's pleased in that. He's proud of his children, if I can say it like that. John Piper talks about the the hidden smile of God. We should live for the hidden smile of God. Oh, there's one little part here that we haven't haven't talked about. What's the motive for all of this? Why should you and I do this? Why? Why not just status quo? I'm just going to keep doing. I know I have my struggles, but everybody has struggles. I'm just going to coast through the Christian life. Why should we pursue growth and change? Why should we do that? What is the argument of the text as to why we should do that? Did you catch it? What does he say? Work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Does that bother any of you? Fear and trembling of what? I'm supposed to be scared of God? I'm so, okay? Remember, context, context, context determines the meaning. Let's not forget the context. Look back at verse 9. Remember, the kenosis, God becomes a man. Remember that? Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
The second person of the Trinity leaves that high position next to the throne of God. He comes down. He takes on manhood so that he's 100% God, 100% man at the same time and the same person. He lives the perfect life that you and I should live. He dies a substitutionary death that you and I deserve. He does all of that so that we can be reconciled to our God. At the end of all that, what does God do? He highly exalts him. He, he raises him from the dead. Then he uh, brings him in, in uh, glorification, so to speak, through the ascension to where God, uh, Jesus goes back and takes his seat at the right hand of God as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords, as the sovereign of the whole universe, so that one day everybody bows, everybody's tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. And that's why we should obey. That's why we should work out our salvation, because he's our master. Because he is king of kings and lord of lords. Because he is the one to whom everyone will bow and everyone will confess. He is exalted and lifted up. He's the sovereign of the universe. He's the creator of everything. He's the savior of humanity. He's in that wonderful position. And you know what he says? Follow me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up a cross and follow me. The the fear and trembling is, is, I don't take that to mean I'm scared of something. The fear and trembling is, look at the Son of God. Look at His position. He is Lord. He is Master. He is the King of Kings. He is my Savior. And and that sort of, that reverential fear and and awe and and woe, and it's awesome in the old sense of the word. Awe-inspiring. And out of that just, Take your breath away reality that Jesus is Lord and Master. We follow Him. We say, I want to be like that. And we do what He tells us to do. Ought we to disobey that type of person? Is it wise to say to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, No? Shall we say to the one who bled for us? Shall we say to the one who died in our place? Shall we say to him, No, I I love my sin too much to repent and pursue righteousness in this area? Is that what we really want to say? The motive for sanctification, at least according to this verse, is that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And he's called us to follow him. So what's your struggle? What's that pet sin? What's that problem person that you're bitter over or need to forgive? Or Okay. God has given us the doctrine of sanctification in these verses. And he's called us because he is Lord and he is master to take a step of obedience. And as we take that step of obedience, trusting that He will work for our efforts, we will see and realize real growth and real change that brings Him pleasure.